Welcome to Future Fuzz, the digital marketing podcast. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in for yet another episode of Future Fuzz. This week, we're talking to Mike Maynard, the owner at Napier, the B2B marketing agency. Great chat with Mike this week. We dive into ChatGPT, of course, B2B marketing, and how important it is to always be visible and always be uh, top of mind. It was a great chat with Mike. Enjoy the show. Let's start with one stat, Mike, is that I heard recently that 95% of B2B customers are not in market to actually buy anything. What do you think of that about that stat? Oh, Justin, that's a great stat. And I think it's, um, it's really important, you know, in B2B to understand that. Um, you know, a lot of the time, we've got clients that want to run a marketing campaign, they've got a database of, of contacts, and they're just like, well, we've got this great product, let's just tell them about it, and they'll come and buy it. And it's like, well, actually, they don't want the product at the moment so maybe they're not going to buy it straight away and perhaps what you need to do is think about how you keep them engaged until they're ready to buy um and i think that that's really important it's not unique to b2b i i mean the classic thing is is you know there's one question every car salesman needs to ask and that's how frequently do you change your car because actually it's a very predictable thing with most consumers they change the car on a regular basis and some people it's every three years some it's every five if you get that data you know when to approach your your customer um when you're selling a car it, it's even more commonplace in b2b i mean b2b is driven by um things like budgeting cycles and project cycles and so you know not being in market is really really common as you say so it's, it's a really important stat yeah, I think that's a thing, a common mistake people make. I mean, we, we just spoke about it before we started the cast today is that there some of the clients you work with, they have long sales cycles. So I recently heard about a company that have a sales cycle that lasts 18 months, sometimes even longer. Um, when you're dealing with a sales cycle like that, you, you've got to think differently, don't you? What should people be doing? Well, that's great. And actually, 18 months is not a long sales cycle. So we have one client, um, and they sell into airports, they sell baggage handling systems to airports. Um, and if you look at that somewhere like the Middle East, or, you know, maybe maybe to some extent, China now where development is quite quick, their sales mm -hmm. cycle might be eight to 10 years. Um, eight to 10 that's years, super fast. And that's super fast. R because right, if you're, yeah, if you're selling baggage handling systems, I mean, the first thing someone needs to do is build an airport terminal to put the baggage handling system in. Um, and so, you know, inherently, this product is going to take a long time to sell. Um, and it's incredibly difficult. So this client is really smart about finding ways to keep people engaged throughout that long period. Um, and you've got to remember, it's not even necessarily the same person you're keeping engaged because people change jobs. Um, and so it's all about creating content and um, you know creating um, things to talk about that are relevant to people when they're not in that process of actually buying or selecting the product that's that's the way to do it um, and it, it's that engagement that's really important okay and you, and you spoke about customer journeys for b2b um, as well so <laughs> let's say what we spoke about before we started so you said that there are some clients or companies that will send out three emails and say we've got the like, we've got a campaign we've got three emails going out we're going to say how fantastic our product is and they expect uh you know worlds to move but that that's a completely wrong approach so you're you're looking at customer customer journeys and then also micro journeys within that yeah and I, I think justin it's not always the wrong approach so we have um also clients that are selling products where a significant p potential of people would be ready to purchase 
Um, and it could be, you know, a, a great example is engineers creating uh, software um, for, for semiconductors. They'll need to buy something called a development kit. And these development kits are continuously upgraded. And the reality is, is that most people are working on development kit that's maybe slightly old. Um, and so although they're not necessarily in market as in actively looking, they're very open to make a purchase. So quite often, you know, emailing your, your uh, current registered users and saying you can buy the latest version and maybe giving a discount to create some sort of, um, you know, uh, need to, to, to actually do it within a certain time. That can be a great campaign and that can work really well. But on the other hand, there's a, there's a lot of people and they're trying to create these campaigns that take um, potential customers all the way through from awareness through to you know what we call opportunity, so talking to the salespeople. And that awareness to opportunity can be a long and complex journey for a lot of companies. And it's not something you drive with you know a couple of emails. So actually what we try and do with clients is to break down that customer journey, that whole thing from learning about you as a supplier all the way through to buying into little steps or micro journeys. Um, and then, you know, identify who's at a certain stage and move them to the next stage. Um, and again, you know, classic example in technology, and we work a lot with technology clients, so I'm going to give a lot of technology examples. There's very similar analogs in other industries. But, you know, if, if you're, again, buying this product that needs a development kit to evaluate it, you might download some information, some data that talks about the product that helps you decide whether it's right or wrong. The next step would then be to actually test it and have the dev kit. So if someone's downloaded the data sheet, offer them the dev kit. It's a really simple micro, micro journey. Um, mm -hmm. It probably you know can be achieved in a couple of emails. Um, and it's something that really makes a sensible campaign. But taking someone from you know not really engaging with the company, maybe not knowing about your products, all the way through to you know actually buying this complex product that's going to need you know um, you know man years of software engineering in, in three emails isn't going to happen. So focus on those little steps, and they work. That, that's the way to get business to business campaigns to work well. And do you see that more and more companies are focusing on generating great content now? Are you seeing that trend more and more? I think there's always been a trend to try and generate great content. I think the the challenge is it's very difficult. Um, you know, one of the concerns is 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 everyone's you know getting caught up in the hype about Chat GPT, um, yeah. and and the reality is 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 you know generative AI is producing content that is fundamentally low value. It's rather generic. It's not necessarily desperately insightful. It's very derivative. Um, and it's not surprising because basically it's pulling together content it's been trained on and mashing it into something else. Right. Um, so it does worry me that, that there's people, some people are taking their eye off the ball because they see AI and it looks cool. Um, and yeah. it is cool and it's amazing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, you know, it, 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 when you see your first um, you know, chat GPT response, it, it, it's like changed the world. So um, it's exciting, but it's not going to replace that super high value, super insightful content. Um, and the reality is, and I think a lot of marketers don't like talking about this, but, you know, marketers who generate large volumes of content, normally there's a small percentage that drives the most meaningful engagement. So, you know, it, often it's not the 80-20 rule on content. It might be the 95-5. Right. Um, and 5% generates 95% of the engagement. Um, the challenge you always have is it's not always easy to know which content's going to do that. So quite often you do have to produce a range of content to test what your audience cares about and what, what they see as being you know, particularly novel and particularly uh, interesting. I think that is a very, very valid point. So um, I've seen on many occasions where working with people that they've said, right, we've published... Um, 
these many papers, let's say 10 papers. So there'll be a white paper or a report or maybe even a blog post. And then they'll say, oh, well, we were really surprised that this particular post has done amazingly well. And it's the most visited page on our website after um, the homepage. And then and then it's be you, you never really know, do you? But you can always try and make an educated guess that will say, like, this is our audience and this is what we want. They want to hear about and this is what they want to find useful. And I have found that others have been quite nervous to give away um, sort of not industry secrets, but give away insights. And it's important to educate them and say, well, hang on a minute. Actually, if you if you show that you're the expert and you show that you know what you're talking about, um, that that brings a lot of value. Have you found the same as well? Yeah, so I mean, definitely creating content that helps people is really the solution. Um, and almost always, the content that works best is the content that's actually going to help your audience do their job. Um, so I think people try and do that. I think the problem is, it's like shooting at a target blindfold. Um, you know, and, and William Tell might be able to hit that bullseye, you know, every time. But n most of us are not, you know, in living in fairy tales, we're living in the real world. And we're going to be a little bit all over the place. So, you know, with the content we generate, it's it's not that we're doing crazy stuff that's completely irrelevant, but we're maybe not quite hitting that bullseye of what really, you know, fixes a problem that our audience is having. So, you know, trying different things and seeing what works is really important because then, you know, you know, that arrow was in the bullseye. So fire another arrow there. If you wrote a white paper, you know, white papers are very popular in, in B2B still. Um, yeah. You know, create an ebook, create a video, you know, create an infographic, um, but all around that topic. So I think, you know, there's two things. One is to be prepared to admit that some of your content isn't going to resonate and really focus on, on trying to find out what resonates with the audience. And secondly, when you find that, double down on that content and produce, you know, different versions, target different channels, you know, put it on social if you've, you know, previously marketed it through search ads or whatever. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people they're not really prepared to admit that actually we should just forget about a, a large percentage of our content because it, it didn't really hit the market. It helped us get to the objective, but it didn't get there itself. And then equally, um, uh, a lot of people are maybe a bit reluctant to go and revisit that golden bit of content and repurpose it, you know, because they feel they've done that project. They don't want to go and rehash it. But actually, that's where you get the magic because you can then use this, this content you know is going to work and you can spread it across all sorts of different channels. I've seen a brilliant example from a performance agency where they published their, I wouldn't call it project plan planner, but they publish the, the sequence that they go through in their analysis. And, and um, it, it, it absolutely took off. And then every year they've gone back to it and made it better and better and better. And now it's turned into this absolute monster, but it, it you know, is still really popular. And so much so that now university lecturers have been using it in their marketing lectures. Uh, to students and then they're getting um invited to go and speak at university so that's really impressive you know they've done that really well and i uh, and i think why not you know if you get known for doing something then why not go back to it and rehash it um mike you mentioned chat gbt there uh, uh previously um i've got an admit admission to make i haven't used it yet <laughs> uh <laughs> i feel like the whole world has but i haven't had it go yet um you you said it's you said it's hyped. Um, I'm, I have a tendency to sort of agree with you. I think it's amazing. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of hype surrounding it. Do you think that people are maybe taking their eye off the ball a bit and playing around with this and it's not actually bringing any immediate value? 
Future First is sponsored by SalesSource, B2B pipeline management and sales growth for your business. So, so I think it's like any shiny thing. You know, it attracts attention. People want to play with it. Um, I, I, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, AI is going to have a huge impact and already is having a huge impact on marketing. So to go and play with it is not necessarily a bad idea. Um, I think, you know, it's really important to go and understand this technology, but it's equally important not to get carried away. You know, and the first time you, you talk to a computer and it talks back, it's, it's you know, I, I mean, I'm not the youngest person in the world here. You know, I remember science fiction when it said this would happen and we were like, oh, you know, if the computer can ever respond like it's a real person, that, that, that would be like the most amazing thing ever. And it is, it's happening and it is the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that chat GPT is going to play, you know, centre forward for Ipswich Town. I'm a football fan. I love Ipswich. You know, chat GPT <laughs> is not going to play centre forward for Ipswich Town and get us uh, to the top of the Premier League. It's not going right. to happen. Yeah. Um, and I think equally with content, you've got to understand that the way the AI is working today, it's taking existing content and it's producing a derivative of that. Um, and the reality is with, with AI is that you're not necessarily able to create anything new it's very hard to get ai to create something that's genuinely new um and if you want to create content that is you know unique and exciting and really grabs your audience attention it needs to be new it can't be can't be highly derivative so there is an issue around content generation i mean we've we've been playing with ai in fact our you know our first experience with ai content generation were well over a year ago um and actually um, since I think it was about October last year, we've been posting a few AI-generated blog posts on our website. Okay, um, so, and have so they, we've and already have been doing gone? this. Yeah, and I can tell you, not as well as human-generated uh, blog posts. I mean, they're yeah. not terrible. They get some traffic. You know, they they they're okay as a kind of you know medium low quality kind of blog post on the site, but they're not matching the stuff where we really invest time. And we try and think about creating something that's going to be unique and uniquely valuable. So, you know, can ChatGPT do an awful lot? Yes. Can it replace all, all the writers in the world? Absolutely not. Um, you know, if you're, for example, if you're trying to create a blog post and you want an idea for a headline, you know, getting ChatGPT to suggest five ideas, absolutely brilliant. You know, it's yeah. great. I've been using, um, I've been writing, using Lime. Sorry. Dot a, sorry, I've been using Lime um mm -hmm. dot i a uh, headline i should say for three years and um been using that for inspiration for content and uh headlines and all that sort of thing for a long time and it was fine it, it was it, it's great for great for a tool i i fear that people just might get a bit lazy because i do feel from the stuff that i've seen come out of it it is it can be a little bit repetitive and it's a little bit flat but it should be used as a tool it is not going to um sort of uh, save all our ills if that's the right term that i'm using there no absolutely i mean i think you know forever people have been using formulas um you know it, it, and, and simple formula you know if you're, you're creating headlines you ask a question um very very simple formula people have been doing that for ages you know ai is taking you one step further it's somewhat formulaic as you say but it's actually creating something that, that's a little bit new um so without doubt it's an amazing tool Mm -hmm. um, and actually, you know, if you've got a team of, of, you know, say five people and they're all writing content, whether that be, you know, Google search ads or whether it be blog posts, you know, maybe in the future you can produce the same volume of content with two people. Um, you know, right. for sure. I think, I think there's going to be 
acceleration benefits and people who use AI are going to accelerate what they do as they go forward. But is it going to take your team of five to zero? No, I, I think that that's a long way off. That's a long um, way off know, indeed, yeah. It's like self-driving cars. I mean, we've been 95% of the way to self-driving cars for a, for a few years now. We got to 95% pretty quickly. Um, but that last 5% is really hard. And I think the same thing will be true of AI and content. You know, 95% is, is achievable. 100% of, of a real human is actually really hard to do. Yeah, yeah. And if we get really deep here, the scientist uh, James Lovelock, who uh, is the founder of Gaia Theory, he has written a book on AI and he published it before he died. He died when he was about 101 years old. I think it was a year and a half ago, maybe a bit a bit longer ago. And he predicted that when AI really comes to that stage that it is self-learning and self-building and it can manage its own servers and absolutely everything, um, it will just sort of for, build its own spaceship and fly away because it won't have any interest on hanging around with us monkeys here on planet Earth. <laughs> so let's see if that's, uh, if that's uh, the case. Yeah. Um, are there any other trends that you're seeing at the moment? I mean, we are technically in a recession. Um, there's a lot of change. You're hearing about layoffs and redundancies at um, several companies like Google and uh, and others. Are there any trends that you're seeing there um, at the moment, Mike, with how that's impacting people's B2B activities? So, so that's really interesting. I think, you know, to some extent, the layoffs we're seeing is kind of a natural cycle. Um, and a lot of these big tech companies, I mean, you know, Google's not in trouble for money. I mean, if anybody's, you know, worried about Google as a company, they're, they're doing fine. Um, but what they do tend to do is when times are really good, they're able to overhire and then they cut back. And, and you see that a lot with big companies. It's not just tech, but, you know, you get this cycle of, of you know, perhaps overhiring and then, then overcutting and then they have to go back to overhiring. It's very, as, as a, an ex-engineer, um, I, I do remember my, my lecturing control systems would be laughing if he's still around. I do remember the control systems thing, and I do remember how hard it is to actually, in a control system, stop things overshooting. Um, and the same thing is true of hiring. You know, you overshoot, you hire too many, then you fire too many. You know, it, it's, just, it's just natural. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily anything particularly unusual. Um, what we have seen, though, um, and it's not just us. I mean, lots of people like Gartner and the CB are saying the same thing is that where people are looking to purchase products for B2B, more and more they're rejecting the, the salesperson and talking to the salesperson later and later um, in their, their journey through um, uh, to buying. So actually what's happening is they're doing, you know, what Gartner calls, you know, more self-directed research. So they're going and researching on the internet um, and trying to learn themselves rather than asking salespeople, which, you know, 20 years ago, that's what they'd have done. They'd learned from salespeople. Um, and because people are, are doing more self-directed research, you need more marketing uh, materials and you need more proactive marketing. So we're actually seeing a trend away from, you know, investment in big sales teams and a trend towards more investment in marketing. Um, and again, don't get me wrong, this is not a... This is not an absolute black-white trend. You know, I mean, for sure, in the future, salespeople are going to be important. But I think there's going to be fewer salespeople closing more deals and, um, because they're talking uh, to customers at a later stage. And actually, the sales is going to be, you know, almost all about sales. Whereas, as I say, 20 years ago, there was a lot of education um, to get people to the point of buying. So I think, I think the world of sales is changing. And that also means that marketing is becoming more important. And we're actually seeing a lot of clients saying, yeah, actually, we recognize that. You know, our sales team's got to change. Um, 
it might actually have to get smaller or we might have to take some of our salespeople use them to really understand what customers want and then use those salespeople to inform marketing to get the right marketing collateral because then marketing is covering areas now that actually you know as i say 10 20 years ago was really covered by sales in terms of the customer journey I had exactly this com- same conversation with Melissa Kwan um, in a previous podcast. She, her company is eWebinar, so she's explaining that um, doing Zoom calls, doing sales Zoom calls, is a complete waste of time. That all that process should be, as you say, a let's say a self-discovery uh, process. And um, I also heard that there's a, another statistic that. The majority, let's say like 95% of people want to own their own sales experience with a company. So like, exactly like you say, they want to find out the information. It needs to be readily available, very easy to find. They will think about it. They will research. And then when they're ready, they'll reach out to, to the, let's say, the sales team or the customer success team, as they're sometimes called. And then they will instigate that process. So that sounds very similar um, to what you're saying. Um, there's also another really interesting stat that the a very large proportion of decision makers now in companies are millennials because they're middle management. They're in their, I mean, I'm a millennial. I'm just about to turn 40. So there I am. I'm making decisions on what gets bought. So there's a huge shift there, isn't there, really? I think that there's, there's a massive shift and, and a lot of it is obviously people who grew up with the technology are much more comfortable using it. Um, but I also think that there's a lot of cultural shifts. You know, I, I mean, previously in B two B, you know, perhaps it was fine for a salesperson to come and take you out to lunch, um, and now I think you know a lot of people actually feel a little uncomfortable about being somewhat indebted to a salesperson, even though you know no one's really going to make that decision um, to buy something just because they're bought lunch. Um, and, and I think this has huge impact on sales. Um, and one of the things that used to happen. Um, and, and I used to be a salesperson, so you know I, I've done this in in B two B. You'd you'd walk into a, a, a customer to have a meeting because this was pre Teams, pre Zoom, um, and you meet Mike and you go, Mike, how you doing? Blah, blah, you know, and there'd be someone sat over there. You go, oh, who's that? Oh, that's Justin. Oh, what's Justin working on? Oh, he's building this you know Widget two thousand system, and he's got this really big problem now. So don't interrupt him. You go, I can help you with that, and it's a sale. A sale created amazingly just through that informal conversation. Um, yeah. You don't get that because, you know, even if salespeople are, are meeting customers, you know, a lot of the time it's virtual. So you don't get to see what other people are doing. You don't get that um, kind of loose tie introduction that you would do if you're physically visiting the customer. Um, and that's made sales really hard. I mean, like I say, you know, these changes, the, the fact that people are spending less time with salespeople, it doesn't mean that we should forget about sales. It actually means sales is much, much harder. But it also mm. means that marketing has got to start, you know, thinking about, well, how can I help Mike help Justin? Um, because that's what sales used to do. And if we can't do that, we're going to miss out on opportunities. So it, it, it's really exciting to me because the world is changing. Everybody's trying different things, you know, and um, I, I think that that's great for people to experimenting, people trying with different content, you know. It wasn't long ago that webinars were kind of like, well, you can do webinars, but people don't really like them. There's only a few. And people don't people watch them. really love yeah. them. You know. Yeah. Um, and then you went to the pandemic and like you, you couldn't turn people away from a webinar. People flocking in. And now now suddenly, you know, you, you hear, and I've heard from some clients, you know, oh, webinars are no good anymore. And it's just like, 
no, no, no. Your webinar audience is like half what it was peak in the pandemic, but it's still three times what it was pre-pandemic. So right. actually webinars are, are still rocking. But, you know, just think about a bit of a longer time frame and think about what you're actually achieving rather than just comparing it to your best result. I, I do miss the the business lunches. I have to say, I don't think my my liver doesn't miss them, but I do miss the social uh, nature of them. They were always good fun. They went to some great places, um, but it has changed indeed. I feel as though there is an opportunity for let's say mini events, so encouraging people to invite expert speakers, get them to to speak, and then they can come in and uh, just have a beta, have a networking event. They're quite social. And then hopefully people won't feel like too indebted, um, you know, especially like if you buy them a fancy lunch, then you might feel there's some pressure. Um, but mini events are definitely a good opportunity. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the Future Fuzz podcast. I'm glad we make it happen, made it happen, I should say. Um, and it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. I've loved it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in and making the choice to listen to this podcast. If you liked what you've heard today, please don't forget to subscribe.